Today's podcast is brought to you by Nature's Best Relief, CBD oil and products. Hey, this is pure high-strain hemp. That's what it is. It's what they do. Their products are made from a cannabis compound with significant supplement benefits without the THC that makes you stoned or high. It's just the good stuff. The hemp products help with inflammation, pain, anxiety, psychosis, seizures, spasms, and other conditions. And here's the best news. If you use code word mudflap or remasculate at checkout, you can get 10% off your total bill. That's right. So check out Nature's Best Relief CBD oil and hemp products. They've got capsules, uh, the lotions, cream. Uh, they got all the flavor oils. That's, that's what I've been using. I like the, uh, the cinnamon and the vanilla. But check them out at naturesbestrelief.com. That's naturesbestrelief.com. And use code word mudflap or remasculate and get 10% off your total purchase. In the basement of the mudflap house, flapping and poo. And the under with the grains and loose. And poo licks itself. And Flap contemplates manly things. He thinks about guns and trucks and stooges three. Men and boys, and that doesn't sound right. He thinks about boobs and bacon and power tools. Come with me, let your masculine. Oh, won't you come with me and remasculine? Hello? Ha. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Remasculate. I'm your host, Steve Mudflap McGrew. Um, I've got just a fantastic guest for you guys today. I'm so excited that I, uh, that I was able to, to get this nailed down and make it happen. Uh, I'm a big fan of this guy. I know you are too. If you're about to listen to this, it's probably because you saw his name and thought, I've got to hear this interview. Um, today's guest is Scott Adams, the uh, the brilliant Scott Adams, cartoonist. Did Dilbert? Who doesn't know Dilbert? Dilbert's been one of the biggest, most famous cartoons uh, ever. It's right up there with like Peanuts and Bloom County and stuff. And uh, I contacted him through Twitter because I'm a big Twitter fan of his, and I watch his uh, his internet Periscope uh, a lot. Uh, so I just said, hey, will you, you want to be on the podcast? And he wrote back, sure. And I almost pooped in my pants. I was that excited. <laughs> no, I didn't. He's going to hate to hear that when I, when I play this back. But I was like, what? He said yes. Woohoo! So we got it all set up and got him recorded. Uh, well, and I go to edit and I find out that the first part of the podcast has some technical issues just the very first few minutes there was not a good connection on um on the audio cord and so there's a little bit of weirdness to scott's side but it goes away after the first few minutes so stick with it or if you want to just jump right past like i think it's seven minutes in then then it just totally clears up and we're all good for the rest of the hour so i just want to kind of give you a heads up on that so you like what the hell where's he calling from is it are they talking on tin cans and string no we're not it was skype and sometimes you just you just have audio issues but 
Trust me, it's a great interview. We find out so much stuff about Scott and how he got started as a cartoonist and how he evolved uh, into the uh, the writer of the books, so many books that he sold with his latest book, uh, Loser Speak. So let's enough of my ramblings right now. Let's get on with this interview. It's Scott Adams. Well, I'm very excited today on the Remasculate podcast to have uh, the amazing Scott Adams. You you are a, a sort of a, a hero to me, and I will tell you why here in a second. But uh, everybody is, knows you from Dilbert the cartoon, and now as a Twitter god. How did that? How did that happen? How did the Twitter thing blow up for you? Well, it's a little bit accidental. I didn't use social media a lot when I was married for about 10 years, so I'm a little bit late to the party. Um, but once I became unmarried, I, uh, I started using it and uh, started growing a following. But mostly it was because I started writing about President Trump's, or at least candidate Trump's, uh, persuasion skills. Now, I wasn't really talking about politics per se. It was just more about uh, I have a background as a hypnotist, and I've been studying persuasion all my life as part of my job as a writer. And I saw that President, President Trump, then candidate Trump, had a, a ton of persuasion tools that I thought would be invisible to people who had not studied this field. So I started writing about that, and one thing led to another, and became, it became more and more popular. So I started doing a, a daily live stream, and it just kept growing. Yeah, the I love your uh, your live stream with the uh, this uh, simultaneous sip. Yeah, people uh, are addicted to it to uh, taking a, a sip of their morning beverage at the same time I do on my live stream. Yeah, I do I do a thing every now and then called uh, noodle chat where I actually eat ramen noodles uh, and do a, li- a live video and the whole we do we discuss sort of like you do and my rule is when I'm done eating the noodles the show's over. So it, it, it might be 30 minutes or it's been an hour and a half, you know. You know, it's, you mentioned one of the most important things that's happened in the, the world of media entertainment is that if you do stuff online like you and I do, you can make the length of the content whatever the content should be. Right. But if you're on TV or a movie or something, it's going to be half an hour, it's going to be two and a half hours, you've got to hit that mark. And, and then most of it's going to be filler most of the time, or you've cut too much out. Yeah. But you and I can just hit whatever is the right time. Yeah, that's what I, I, I love that, that you could feel when to punch out, too, you know. that. Do you, Who did that first? I believe that was Larry David when he did his show Curb Your Enthusiasm, when you know he had so much power coming off of the Seinfeld success that when he did a show for HBO – Instead of saying it's a half-hour show or it's an hour show, he just said it's whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And they just had to figure it out, you know. Well, we got 17 minutes left over the hour. We're going to have to figure it out. And uh, that, that really worked for him. Yeah. Is that one of your your uh, your guys? Do you like Larry David? Is that your like an influence for you? Well, I, I'm often compared to him. We have a pretty similar sensibilities and a little bit physical similarities. Uh, <laughs> Agreed that it was a spot-on imitation, which I don't know what I should think about that. 
<laughs> very nice. Very nice. Well, um, to let people know why I said earlier that you were kind of like an icon hero to me is I, I was a cartoonist myself for the Houston Chronicle. That's how I started uh, my adult life or career was cartooning. And that's something that I knew that I always wanted to do. And I tried over and over and over to get a syndicated cartoon and had all these different, you know how you got to do 12 weeks and a couple of Sunday strips and the whole, yeah. And finally, at one point, I thought, you know, I'm just going to do stand up. So that's kind of the shift for me. But you, you made the cartooning part come to life. Now, I have to ask you, did you have a main character or a theme to the cartoons you tried to get syndicated? Um, I, I did. One of them was called You, you Buzzard. It was about a, a buzzard down in Texas that had an armadillo and a rattlesnake for a, a friend. And that was that was one of the, the strips. Now, you should have talked to me first because I'll tell you exactly what's wrong with that concept. What's that? Because I've run into this a whole bunch of times. Here, here's a famous story about how Jim Davis... Uh, became famous with Garfield. The, the first comic that he, or at least I don't know how many times he tried to be syndicated, but one of his early ones was a character that was a gnat. <laughs> you know, an actual bug. And they them accurately. They said, excuse me, I got a little allergies. Um, and the syndicate told him, nobody likes a bug. It doesn't matter how clever it is, doesn't matter how well drawn. Nobody likes a bug. So it doesn't matter what skill you bring to it, nobody likes a bug. And so he came back with a lovable cat. And sure enough, everybody likes the cat. They didn't care how he drew it, and they didn't care what he wrote. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But the fact is that the cat, and the fact it was cute, and you know, you could identify some of its personality, was all people cared about yeah. in the end. When I did Dilbert, it's because people have jobs like Dilbert's. It's not because I drew it well. It's not because I executed it well. So if you had come to me and said, Scott, I'm going to submit a comic about a buzzard, a snake, and an armadillo, I would have said to you, stop. <laughs> Don't waste your time. Don't. Your characters have to be identifiable with the, the reader, and nothing else matters. Yeah. That's the beginning and the end of I mean, the, take the comic strip Kathy. Oh, I used to love that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, the primary thing that made it popular is that women said, oh, yeah, I think like that. I have that problem. So if you get that part, everything else works. But if you don't get that part, execution doesn't matter. Yeah, right, right. Well, I, I tried another one later on after I was doing stand-up. I thought, well, I'll try this one more time, and it was called Laughing Stock, and I, I had it based on myself at a comedy club. The whole thing would be at a comedy club. And yeah, uh, same, I, same, same problem, though, right? Yeah, exact, exact same. Thank you. Your artwork was great. We enjoyed the jokes, you know, the, the, the rejection letter, but, right. you know. Now, if you did, if you were to try again, uh, I know this isn't why you're talking to me today, but I can't, I can't resist. Go for it. If you were to try again, uh, I know you're doing shows on uh, cruise ships now. And so you're seeing a slice of the world, which is the vacation world. Mm -hmm. So if you if you did a comic about being, you know, exactly that, either an entertainer or somebody working in the the resort or vacation business, you would have this field of vacationers doing vacationy things that everybody who takes a vacation, uh, which 
Uh-huh. You'd have to have Everybody. Have to even take a vacation. But they'd recognize it. They'd say, oh, yeah. That's, uh, you know, it'd be stuff like, how do you take five different people who are in your family to one place and have them all enjoy it? And the answer is, you can't. Right. You can't. I talked I talked to somebody at one of the cruise ships. They were a party of uh, 70 people, a group. And, and I said, how are you guys doing this together? And they go, well, we shouldn't have done this at all. It's like they they just it wasn't working. You can't go as a big group on like that. Well, when I got married years ago, uh, we decided to have what we called a family moon, which is we would take uh, our you know in laws, the parents on both sides who were quite you know in one case they were quite elderly, and uh, we'd take them on a cruise, but also with young kids. So we so we had little kids. And senior citizens walking with canes, and we're trying to figure out what to do today. Uh huh. Can't do it. <laughs> There's literally nothing you can all do together that won't make at least half of you want to pull your hair out. Uh, in my case, I started early. But yeah, so if you were going to do another comic, go for the most recognizable scenarios, and that's. That's the magic sauce. Yeah, yeah. Can you hold just a second? I want to check our sound. Something just went wobbly. Hold on just a sec. Okay, I'm I'm back. Can you hear me again? Yes, I can. Okay. It's all good on my end. Okay, that's that's even better. Um, it got it got weird there for a second. So, anyway, how did you how did you decide that you were going to be a cartoonist? If it was that what you wanted to be all along, or did you just kind of stumble into it and somebody? Did you draw? I've always thought this. This is my that I go. I bet he had an office job. He did one of these, and somebody goes, "You ought to submit that." <laughs> that is uh, that is an accurate part of of what happened. Is it? Um, yeah. So when I was six years old, I wanted to be Charles Schultz, and when I was eight and nine and ten, I still wanted to be Charles Schultz. But but when I reached about the age of eleven, and I think that's exactly what happened. I, re- I started getting smart enough that I understood statistics and risk management and the odds of life. Uh-huh. I said to myself, billions of people in the world, most of us would rather be Charles Schultz than whatever the hell we were doing before. How come there's only one of them? Like, what, <laughs> like what, what are my odds that I'm, I'm going to be the second one? Yeah. You know? or, or even any number of the, the small number of people who succeed in cartooning. So I actually gave up on it based on the fact it was an irrational uh, goal. And so I decided, well, I'll just study hard and be a, a lawyer, businessman kind of guy. Ended up working, as you surmised, in a big corporation. So first at a big bank. Uh, and then I that career ended when my boss called me in and told me in direct language, this is not interpretation. This is actually literally what happened. Uh, my boss, a woman told me that the orders had come down that she can't uh, promote any white males. Oh, wow. Because there, there wasn't enough diversity in senior management, and it would just get worse if they kept promoting uh, white males. So they'd, they'd gotten some heat from the press. They had noticed, hey, how come everybody on these pictures of your senior management, they look the same? It's all a bunch of white guys. What are you going to do about that? So um, if, it, if it sounds like I'm complaining, I like to quickly jump in and say, I'm not complaining, I'm describing. Big right? difference. I'm, I'm simply telling you what happened. So I left because my boss was kind enough to tell me directly 
that I couldn't get promoted. So I didn't have to spend five years wondering what was happening, Yeah, which was a gift, really. So I left. I went to work for the local phone company that was Pacific Bell at the time. I got on the management fast track and things were looking good. I finished up my MBA at night. I mean, I was really looking like a rising star, you know. And my boss called me into my office one day and he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but we're getting a lot of heat from the press. (laughs) (laughs) Not enough diversity. (laughs) As it turns out, exactly like the bank situation. He said, we, we got caught. People noticed we have nothing but white men in our senior ranks. And until further notice, we can't promote anymore. Yeah, I just um, just want to be honest with you. So I appreciate it. Again, again I appreciate the honesty. I, I genuinely do. And I also am quick to say that I, I think society had to do something. You know, I mean, it's a brute instrument and it wasn't good for me, certainly. But I think society had the right... I don't know, the right intentions, and maybe there was a time when it made sense to be a little more blunt about, okay, we're just going to stop promoting you guys for a while, start promoting other groups, maybe get a little balance, and then maybe in the future we can relook at this. And, and, I then, think when, that's, and then when people start to get angry about it, we'll rethink it. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> anger and protest drive everything ultimately. So um, – now, of course, the the reason that any of this happened was the assumption that being a, a white man in America in the uh, whatever it was, the 80s um, and then early 90s, uh, that that was such an advantage that, you know, you could do whatever you wanted. So I tested that theory by saying, all right, I don't want to have a boss anymore because having a boss is just going to get me the same situation over and over again. So that's when I tried to become a cartoonist, but I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't know what was the mechanism to become a cartoonist. Did you have any it, art training? No, I'd, I'd taken one art class in college in drawing, and I got the lowest grade in the class. <laughs> uh, I, I I was informed that cartoons are not art. Uh-huh. That, <laughs> and, that, uh huh. That when I was in college, I went to school for fine art. I was going to be a you know fine art painter. I wanted to do fine art. And I started doing cartoons for the college newspaper. That's where I got my – and my art teacher actually said, pick one. Pick one or the other. You can't you know, be good and don't – because he thought cartooning was you know, the bad choice. And I, right. thought, I thought, well, I can whip out a cartoon a lot quicker than I can paint a painting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that was the best career advice you got there, but <laughs> – but but I, but I think when my art teacher gave me the lowest grade in the class, um, that maybe she was a little little off as well. But what happened was this was pre-internet. So finding out how to do something, how to launch a new career was kind of challenging. But as luck would have it, I, I saw the end of a TV show on PBS about how to become a cartoonist. They actually had a TV show on the exact thing I was looking for when I was looking for it. Yeah. But, but I missed almost the entire episode. And I I quickly grabbed a pencil as the closing credits were going by, and I wrote a letter to the, you know, I figured out where they were broadcasting from, and I wrote a letter to the host of the show, and I said, I missed your show, most of it, but can you tell me how to become a cartoonist? And he wrote back a few weeks later a two-page handwritten letter in which he answered my questions and said, use these materials for your art and buy this book to tell you where to submit it. And then he gave me this advice. He said, it's a very competitive industry, and you'll get a lot of rejections, but don't give up. And I thought, okay, I know what I need. So I, 
<laughs> I, I got the materials. I bought the book. I put together some of my finest cartoons and sent them off to the a few magazines that buy cartoons. New Yorker and Playboy were paying the most at the time. Yeah. So I sent to them. So they came back with rejection slips, and they were not even personalized rejections. They were literally just photocopies of rejection right. uh, yep. pages. They smelled and like mimeograph. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they, they still had the smell on them. You're right. And so I thought, well, okay, I tried. Yeah, I did my best, put, picked up all my art supplies, put them in the closet, forgot about it. A year goes by. I have done nothing in cartooning. And I get a second letter from Jack Cassidy, who was the cartoonist who gave me the first advice. And it was weird that he'd write a second letter a year later. I hadn't even thanked him for the first advice. And he said that he was cleaning his office and he came across some samples that were in the bottom of some pile that I'd sent him a year ago. And he said he was just writing to make sure that I hadn't given up. Ah. That was the only reason he wrote. There was no other rejection. No other statement. He was just writing to make sure a year later yeah. that I that I hadn't given up. Now I had given up, and it was like it was like he had looked inside my soul or something from a distance. I never met him. I still have never met the man. I've communicated, but I've never met him. Um, and I thought, well, maybe he knows something I don't. So I got out my art supplies and I created a syndicated cartoon package featuring this little Dilbert character, loosely based on my coworkers. And I submitted it to the major cartoon syndication places. I think there were maybe five of them at the time. Yeah, Universal and all those. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the, the, uh, the rejections start trickling. And when I thought I had all the rejections, I thought, well, now I've tried twice. Didn't work out. But I still felt okay because I gave it my best shot. You know, I put real effort into it. Didn't work out. So I put all applies in the closet again. And a few months go by and I get a phone call from a woman from a company I'd never heard of. She said, uh, I'm from United Media. And I'd never heard of this company, United Media, and I'd not sent my samples to anybody by that name. So I didn't even know why she'd seen my samples. And she said, we've seen your samples and want to offer you a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist. But I'm, but I'm a little wary, right? I'm like, because I haven't heard of this company. So I said, you know, I'm flattered by your offer, but I haven't heard of your this company, this United Media company. Do you have any references? <laughs> now you're interviewing them. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I said, is there anybody you've worked with that I could talk to who could vouch for you, you know, being a legitimate company? And there's this long pause. And she says, yeah, we handle Peanuts <laughs> and Garfield. And when she got to about the 12th name on the list, that's when I realized that I'm going to have to say yes. I'm going to say yes. So I said yes, and then there was a long process of you know working with them and getting in a few newspapers before luck came my way. But that, that was the basic process. Yeah. Now, was the name Dilbert right off the bat? Was that the first name, everything? Dilbert was the first name, but interestingly, uh, his sidekick, the talking dog, Dogbert. I remember that, not, yeah. Was not originally Dogbert. Um, be right before I submitted it, they were just doodles that I did at work. I changed the dog's name from uh, Dildog to Dogbert. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Dildog. <laughs> yeah, so he was Dildog originally. <laughs> 
Now, uh, what was your uh, transition from cartooning to the writing? Now, because I, I, when I looked you up to for the talk, just to make sure, as a good interviewer should, I didn't realize how many books you've done. So was there yeah. was there a transition from the cartooning to the writing part, or was it because the cartoons turned to books and then the books evolved to writing? Well, the way it worked is, is so first of all, I've never taken a writing class. So my background was economics and, and business school, et cetera. And the only writing class I took was a like a, a two-day workshop on business writing, how to write, you know, short clear sentences. But it turns out that for writing humor and for a lot of uh, nonfiction writing, that's exactly the style that you want. So yeah. turned out it's pretty easy to learn. So what happened was, um, because Dilbert the comic was doing well, uh, the Wall Street Journal was looking for a little little flavor for their pages, and they said, hey, could you write a editorial for us? You know, sort of on whatever you want, but something in this Dilberty world. So I wrote an editorial, with no experience whatsoever, I said, sure, I could do that. I can write for one of the most prestigious publications in the world. Sure, no problem, no stress. <laughs> why, why can't I with my, with my complete lack of experience and qualifications? Why wouldn't I say yes to that? So, you know, worst, the worst thing that could happen is I'd be embarrassed, and I don't easily get embarrassed, so there was really no downside. So I said, sure, I'll take a, take a run at it. So I wrote an article that um, was widely, uh, you know, shared and people liked it. It was called The Dilber Principle. And it was about people being promoted that shouldn't have been promoted. Oh, yeah. Failing and, upwards, always. And, and they, um, so it was a variation on the Peter Principle, which was about people getting promoted until they reached their level of incompetence. The Dilber Principle was that uh, because the, the smartest people had to do the technical work, you couldn't afford to promote smart people because you would waste them. You know, if it's the person ordering the donuts and running the meetings, yeah. you don't want to waste them. Right. So that was what the Dilbert Principle was about. So publishers read that article and said, hey, that's a good article. Can you turn that into a book? And you probably already know what I said, which is with no experience <laughs> writing a book, no, sure. no, no qualifications whatsoever. I said, absolutely, I can write a book. I'll whip Why that not? right out for you. Why not? Why wouldn't, <laughs> Why wouldn't I write a book? It's a dumb question. Yeah. Of course I would write a book. So I said yes, and I wrote a book that became the Dilbert Principle, the book, and was a number one bestseller for weeks, and that sort of set things going. So I wrote a number of books that were sort of Dilberty about the workplace, you know, adding text to a few comics in the books. And then one day I was taking a shower. This is important to the story. <laughs> uh, and, and you know how you have your best ideas in the shower? Oh, sometimes? yeah, the epiphany hits you, yeah. And I'm, I'm literally in the shower, decades of random thoughts about the universe and reality, and I can't even explain how this happened, just all of a sudden came together and I realized that every random thought I had about the nature of reality fit together. And I thought, well, that's the damnedest thing. These all fit together like, like it was meant to be one gigantic whole, and I realized that it was a story. And so I turned that into my book called God's Debris, which is a, a, a fiction, but sort of a philosophical thought experiment fiction. And that was just hugely popular um, and, and remains so today. People still mention that when they when they see me today as their favorite thing. And it was a great title, too. Thank you. God's Debris. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's provocative, right? Because yeah. you, immediately, you immediately say, is that fighting words? Is that, are you on my yeah. side? As, as they say today, that would have been clickbait. Yeah, yeah, total clickbait. So that did well. Um, and then um, years passed, and I had a stepson and stepdaughter. And I, I kind of wanted to write a book that captured everything I'd learned. So, yeah, the, the, the book that I wished that I'd read when I was that age you know, can can you just give me a head start? Tell me all the stuff that you figured out, you know, just in simple form, the simple concepts for success. So I put them in a book called How to Fail Almost Everything and Still Win Big, in which I introduced the ideas of a talent stack, stacking together different talents until you have something special, which is literally exactly what you and I are doing right now. Right. They, the the combination of talents it takes to do what you're doing right now and what I'm doing right now at this moment is a lot because we both learned to be funny. We both learned to talk in public, you know, how, how to make your quick points, you know, how, how to do the technology, how to put it together, how to market it. I mean, we've combined exactly the right skills. It's sort of the Power Ranger uh, kind of uh, thing where, you know, all the Rangers come together to make the giant most powerful Ranger. You know, how right. all, the, all the elements turned into the giant, we can defeat them now. Right. But it's a very powerful thought when you're young, because when you're young, you're thinking, what do I do? Like, what what are the steps? Yeah. What's, what's it mean to be an adult? And, and this is a, an easy way to explain it. Being an adult means combining skills until you're special because that's the one thing that's available to everybody. You can, you can combine fairly ordinary skills the way I do as a cartoonist. I don't draw that well. I'm not the funniest guy. I'm not the best writer. Um, but I've got experience in business a little bit. I can draw well enough, write well enough. You know, They just fit together really right. well. So I was teaching stuff like that and how to have systems versus goals. And that was hugely popular. And then I started writing about persuasion and about Trump because I, part of my talent stack includes being a trained hypnotist and studying persuasion. And so when I was writing about Trump, um, that became my book, Win Bigly. And that was huge. Right. You know, best. And of course, when you write successful books, your author says, do you have another one? <laughs> <laughs> and of course you went, well, of course I do. <laughs> and, and Loser Think. Yeah, so my current book is Loser Think, and that's that's teaching people how to avoid the most irrational arguments. They're, they're the ones you see on social media, especially every day. So it uh, doesn't take sides, left or right. It just says these arguments and these argument forms are good, and these ones are ridiculous. So do the good ones, not the ridiculous ones. That's basically what that's about. So it's, it sounds sort of like you you morphed into a, a Trump supporter like uh, or, or a, a backer, I should say, not even a supporter because as I've watched you and read the, read the tweets and watched the, the broadcasts, you kind of get annoyed. And I think just like me, you learn from the people that are commenting, you can't be this stupid. So you can't be this stupid. So you just get well, a bigger and bigger of like, oh, I have to be behind Trump because I can't support this in any way. Well, I, my, my nuance on that is that um, there are brilliant people on both sides of every issue and there are stupid people on both sides of every issue. So sometimes it's easy to imagine when people disagree with you that you must be talking to the stupid ones. Yeah. But, but it's um, – 
it's useful to understand that they think the same about you. In other words, they go, well, there's the stupid one on their side. I'm yeah. glad I'm the, I'm the smart one on my side. And look, there's another stupid one. It, so when I wrote Win Bigly, what I tried to explain is that we're all in sort of our own subjective bubbles and that cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias can make the smartest person appear stupid mm-hmm. to the observer when what's happening is, is an actual psychological phenomenon, which is common. You know, nobody, nobody's exempt. You, there's no such thing as being so smart that you don't fall for confirmation bias. There's no such thing as being so smart that cognitive dissonance never affects you. You know, that's not a thing. But um, So we're all going in and out of these hallucinations and bubbles all day long. That's what Win Bigley was about. And then Loser Think, the new book, is about at least knowing, identifying when you're in a bubble. So it's some simple techniques that if you're saying this – you're probably not operating on the rational plane. <laughs> There's something else going on there. Yeah. So it's little little signals to yourself are in a are in sort of a, a weird irrational bubble. Yeah. So that 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 bubble I think got burst on the left when Trump got elected. I mean, I, I think that was one of those we were living in this nice little bubble that everything is you know pink and glittery, and uh, I always said that this was the first time a whole group of people was told no. It's the first time they heard the word no, and they were like, what? Like a child. What? What? I want it! And it like exposed them. I I refer to it, uh, the election night 2016, as a a cognitive dissonance cluster bomb, where (laughs) we're uh, and cognitive dissonance, for if there's anybody who doesn't know what that phrase refers to, Google. if if your understanding of the world is violated by your by the facts, the facts which you know are true, such as it is definitely true that President Trump got elected, but your worldview is that that's impossible. Yeah. Then you then, then your brain has to fill in why the impossible happened. But here's the important part: it still has to, your brain will try to keep you as the star of the story. And sometimes you're not the star of the story. Sometimes yeah. you're the idiot. you're the you're the village idiot, but your brain will never let you play that part in the movie it's concocting. You're always the brilliant person who maybe had some bad luck, uh-huh. or or other people did the evil things and and they robbed you of the victory which you were surely deserved. The universe, so you, yeah, it was the universe. So, so when people's expectations or understanding of themselves and the world they lived in was completely violated by Trump getting elected, they, they had to concoct stories to paper over this problem. And what they decided was that it must have been Russia because because there's no way they could have been that dumb. It had to be Russia. It had to be. Yeah. And there's no way they could have been so um, unaware of what the rest of the country is thinking so it must be sexism. That's why people didn't vote for it. So, okay, Hillary. <laughs> yeah. So, so the reason that Hillary has 900 reasons why she lost, which is absurd on the surface, is because she's just trying to understand her world and explaining it to people who are just as confused. Yeah, I set up and watched the entire election that night. I mean, I set up to the very end to – watch Hillary come out to concede and as you know she never did like told you know go out go out and say we'll talk to him tomorrow I just wonder how drunk she was back there you know how how she just been sitting back there just I can't go out I can't go out there what am I gonna say 
<laughs> well, drunk and angry and, uh, and also suffering cognitive dissonance. I don't think she knew what was happening. I mean, uh, imagine, if you will, what her, um, her handlers were saying and doing and worrying about. Because you know that she probably, well, this is speculation, but probably her instinct was to go out. But I've got a feeling, this is just guessing, yeah. right? I, I have no reason, there's no backing for this opinion other than speculation. My guess is that her handler said, you do not want to go in public. <laughs> <laughs> you do not. Do not go in public with whatever's going on here. Right now. Just rest that a little bit. Yeah. Just rest that. We'll we'll handle this. So send Podesta out. That was that was just a wonderful. But but now she can't stay out of the public eye. You know, it's like I'm going to write another book. What ha- What happened? We all know what happened. That was my favorite title. What well, What happened? You know, one of the things I like to do to try to maintain some semblance of uh, of being unbiased, which is impossible, but so you know, at least you can fight for it. One of them is I like to acknowledge the good things about people who disagree with me or, or whom I disagree with on something else. Hillary Clinton is really smart. I mean, there's just no way around that. Yeah. She's, you know, if you and I take an IQ test and she's, a, you know, we're competing against her, good luck to you and I, right? She's going to do really well in that. She's a fighter. She's smart. And one of the things that nobody, I don't think anybody has quite understood is that she adopted Trump's technique. And because you don't expect it, it's sort of invisible. So when you see her out here saying provocative things that you think are batshit crazy, it's not because she's batshit crazy. Yeah. It's because Hillary is really, really smart, and she figured out you know, that what Trump does works better. So she's just doing more of that. She's she's selling books. She's staying in the in the spotlight. She's making her speaking fee go up because she's more famous. So technique wise, all of her her complaining to her of coming yeah. up with a new reason why she left lost and they're all more provocative than the last one. It's pure Trump. Yeah. And but, it, but you, it has to look bad, though, every once in a while, like when those tickets were on sale, when they were – she and Bill were out, and it was like $50, and then 20 and then the tickets were like 5 bucks. I mean, how how do you go out? How do you how do you go, I guess we got 20 people out here at $5. Let's go talk to them. Yeah, I, I think that was probably more of an anomaly because I think she's been quite popular. Um, Christina, my – my uh, girlfriend uh, went to one of her events. It was well attended. She enjoyed it. So, um, you know, I, I have, a, I have a, a grudging admiration for the way Hillary is treating this, even though I join in with them mocking her when she says, I lost for this reason or that. Ridiculous on the surface. Right. But as a technique, it is pure Trumpian effectiveness because we can't look away right. and that's all she needs right now she just wants us not to be able to look away she's performing that perfectly well speaking of not being able to look away what about that new picture she released where it just looked like she, uh she had had some type of plastic surgery done if you I'm, I'm sure you've seen that but if you yeah. zo- if you zoom in really close on the computer it's bad airbrushing i mean it really is a bad oh, airbrush job so, uh, so you're wondering, like, what now? Why is that out? Why would you want a, an unflattering picture out? 
Well, did she put it out or did somebody else put it out? Uh, I think somebody else put it out, but it went, it went, the, I saw it on the Daily Mail, you know, like she, Hillary is out and looking so much younger. Younger. I, I saw a photo that looked world like it wasn't actually her. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that's the same ones you're talking about where her face was so different that I couldn't convince myself it was even the same person. But yeah, in the world of Photoshop and deep fakes and all that, you can't, there's nothing you can conclude from that. You know, you, all you can conclude is, well, I don't know why it looks like that. You have to move on. <laughs> hold on. Sorry. Hold, make you hold on again for just a second. Okay. I'm back. Sorry. Had a, my computer wasn't plugged in all the way. It hit, hit me low battery. Um, so I'll just edit this out. So I want to ask you a few uh, just odd questions since this is just a regular, typical uh, <laughs> podcast. What, what is the first thing that you do in the morning? The very first thing. First thing I do is I walk downstairs and turn on my coffee maker. So I have to heat it up. So I've got sort of a nice coffee maker. You heat it up and then you can just push the button. So that's the first thing I do. Not an espresso guy, strictly coffee? I'm strictly coffee. The problem with any of these like little coffee drinks is uh -huh. they don't last they don't last long enough. It's it's the process I like as much as the caffeine. Uh, okay. Um what is the last thing that you Googled that you probably wouldn't want people to know? Oh <laughs> that uh, I hope I can remember it because it was just yesterday. Oh, I don't know if I can tell you this. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll give you a general idea. Okay. Uh, I saw mention of a horrible uh, historical event on Twitter. I won't mention what it is. And I thought to myself, uh, I would be very interested in learning more about that horrible historical event. And I Googled it, and I felt terrible. <laughs> Because I was using one of the literally one of the worst things that's ever happened on the planet Earth, I was using it for my own entertainment. Right. Because I I was interested. Yeah. You know, of like, you know what what kind of human behavior goes into this happening? So again, I'm not going to mention it because it was truly among the most heinous things ever happened on the entire planet. Uh, but honestly. I hate the fact that it entertained me to, yeah. to learn more about it. Luckily, it was many years ago. So, Did you let yeah. it run you down a rabbit hole over you start doing the, the page jump where now I'm going to look at this and now I'm looking at that? And Well, I looked at uh, a number of topics on the same topic. I, I didn't go down the rabbit hole to the whole new topics. That can be dangerous. Yeah, that, I, I spent a whole day doing that sometimes. <laughs> um, if you could meet anyone living or dead, who would it be? Uh, it'd be someone living, because if you meet somebody dead, what kind of conversation are you going to have? <laughs> hey, I'm talking to you here. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is an exact punchline from uh, Pearls Before Swine, Stefan Postas. So that, that your your question was directly uh, a setup from one of his comics. I just gave you his punchline. <laughs> uh, but to answer your question, uh, on my very short list of people I would actually like to spend some time talking to would be Bill Gates. I don't think there's anybody like him. You know, the way, the way his mind works, I don't think there's just anything like him. Um, so he would be the, the top for, like, say, intellectual stuff. Uh, for, I don't know, just for bragging rights or something else, I would say Paul McCartney. Ah. Because there's nobody in my lifetime – 
who's been that revered for that long in my personal my personal view of things. Yeah. He, he just to me he stands alone. Like I don't even know that he's had a scandal. No. I mean, really? No, and he's, he's he, married to the same woman for so long, and to before Linda yeah, before she died. He he's been authentic from the moment we've yeah we were available to him. He's always been him. He's never been different. He he said one of the my favorite things once uh, years ago. He was being uh, getting some uh, heat for making so much money. So he was getting heat as just being a rich guy in a world where other people are not rich. And he said, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said something along the lines of, I earned it. Can I keep it? Right. And yeah. I, I thought, I, there's nothing else you need to say. Yeah. I, I, I earned it. Can I keep it? But I think that's the way we all feel, <laughs> isn't it? That's when, when, when people like Bernie Sanders saying we need to distribute the wealth, you're like, but, but I, I made it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm the one that worked and, hard for this. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like the uh, – the canary in the cold mine when it comes to uh, what will taxes do to your incentives and stuff, you know, cause I've already made a lot of money, so I don't need to work. And when somebody says, uh, say Elizabeth Warren says, I'm going to make your tax rates, whatever, whatever high number that is, I immediately say to myself, well, I would stop working immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like that, the, on that day that my tax rate became 70% or whatever it is, that's the last day I would work. Why would I ever work? Yeah. Why not just go ahead and have a one-room apartment and a TV set and a bed and get some free food and survive? Well, well my, in my case, I have more than a one-bedroom. Oh, yeah. You know, in your so. case. Yeah, definitely. Your case. So, so that's, that's why I'm the, the end. Because I am – I think you know, we mentioned about the books, books I wrote and people seem to find value in that and, and some other things I'm doing. But all of the value that I put into the world – and I, I work a lot. I would just stop doing it. Because I don't need to. Right. I, I mean, I do, I do that for the benefit of, you know, other people primarily. But if if uh, I was also being paid and then the money was just going to other people mostly, <laughs> I'm not sure I would do it. It well, would just feel different. Well, that's one of the things I thought when I started seeing you doing the daily uh, uh, online Twitter shows is like, now he must really want to do this because this is work. Because I, yeah. I, I, as a video guy and shoot videos and stuff, I some days you go, I don't feel like this. I don't even have a good idea today. So I'm going to skip a video. You know, yeah, I didn't really start out thinking that I would do a daily Periscope, uh, the live stream you're talking about. Yeah. But I'm addicted because there's something about the technology that allows, that feels like it's a mass Mass broadcast, but it's also personal because mm -hmm. the co the comments are coming in in real time, and I'm adjusting based on the comments and stuff. And it feels like a personal conversation with people I like. So I'm I'm completely addicted to the, I don't know, the dopamine that I right. get from the right. process. Yeah, but do you do you prepare a lot for that? Like you like you would for a speech, or you kind of just sit down with a cup of coffee and some notes and go, ha, hey, let's talk about this today. I, I usually just look at the news, CNN and Fox, and then look on Twitter to see what's what's hot on Twitter, and then I just copy and paste into a, a little file, temporary file, mostly just the headlines, and then I, I riff off of those. So I, I usually only talk about things where I have an angle on it. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's if there's yet another idiot who shot yet another bunch of innocent people, 
it's a tragedy. It should be in the news, but there's nothing I can add to that. Yeah. So, so I, I typically stay away from that stuff well, that, and that, things I can add to. That's sort of the same thing as, and I appreciate that you, uh, uh, retweeted my liberal Larry characters every once in a while to the video that I do. But I I was doing a liberal Larry kind of a, a live stream. Uh, but I found that, like you said, having a, a, a take on it. So a lot of times I'd feel like, well, I've got a take and I can get this done in two minutes. So maybe right. I should do these short videos and sit sitting down here and trying to have these long train of thought conversations with people, you know, so just zing it and get out, you know. Yeah, and the, I, I definitely have had days where I overslept and uh, and literally had five minutes before airtime. Because uh-huh. remember, I do this in my pajamas. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm in my pajamas right now. I, I haven't shaved. You know, I mean, I haven't showered. Uh, you know, the way it should be. It's the way it should be. But there'll be five minutes before airtime, and all I'm thinking is instead of being panicked that I'm not prepared or anything, all I'm thinking is. I'm going to have fun in five minutes. Yeah. I, I, I only have a positive thought about it. And then I'll just glance at the headlines and start talking. And then like we were talking about the, the Larry David thing where the, if you can adjust how long you're on, you solve most of your problems. I'm not trying to fill an hour. I'm talking until I, I'm, out, I'm out of, uh, out of interest. I yeah. guess. I'm out of noodles. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I'm out of here. So yeah. what what is one thing about yourself that you wish more people knew? Um, the biggest misconception about me is that uh, I support President Trump no matter what he does and in all ways on all topics. That annoys me more than most things because I spend so much time saying what I don't agree with uh-huh. that to be a pigeonholed in that and then having to – defend something that is so demonstrably not true. Now, it is true that I talk mostly about things he's doing right because I'm talking about persuasion and stuff. Uh, but I have plenty of problems about healthcare, immigration, uh, fentanyl. You know, I, I, I've got a whole list of things I wish were done better. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I can't enjoy the things he's doing well. Yeah. But do, does it ever – how how – do you not lose it sometimes when you get the people that say, name one thing that he's done. Name one accomplishment. that he, I can't believe you're behind this guy. Can you even name one thing that he's – how do you how, – because I almost lose my mind. Like how do you – how are you not even know one thing? How are you that stupid? I, I had exactly that situation yesterday where somebody on, on Twitter challenged me to tell me one good thing he's done. And you, I'm sure you've seen the links to page after page after page of accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really a long list at this point. Now, you could argue that you don't like those things. You know, you could say, I don't like the judges, you know, because let's say you're a liberal or something. Um, you could say, uh, I don't know, you could, you could find things you don't like about what he's done. But to deny that this is the most productive presidency in the history of all presidents is just – I. I think you're just I don't know how you could not notice you know the most accomplishments of any president by far it's not even close. Yeah, oh I agree. Um what do you uh what would be your deathbed confession? <laughs> if I if I could tell you now it wouldn't be a deathbed confession. <laughs> you want to take away my deathbed confession. 
Let me see if I can give you a real answer to that question. A <laughs> deathbed confession. Maybe, maybe there's a way I can. Oh, well, uh, I'll give you a generic answer. Okay. Um, my life is extraordinary in ways that a lot of people can notice. In other words, there are many people who could become a famous cartoonist. Um, last year, I was standing in the Oval Office chatting with the president of the United States because he invited me to come on, come on over. I mean, these are just like tiny little nuggets of things that happen to me on a daily basis, just amazingly extraordinary experiences. But all of the good stuff uh-huh. I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever you think about how extraordinary my, my known life is, right. I can promise you that the things that I can't talk about for different reasons, sometimes it's somebody's confidence, so other times you just wouldn't believe it. There, there, there are a number of true stories that I don't tell because I know nobody would believe it. Yeah. Just completely outside the realm of believability. And I, I'm, I know what you're talking about because being in the industry for as long, and I, I do morning radio for a while, uh, I've met so many famous people. That I don't even tell anybody anymore because it, it's like you don't want to sound like you're name dropping constantly. So yeah. you you almost just sit quietly, like, oh, I have a story about that with Dolly Parton, but I'm not going to tell you that. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, so you've had the, the experience I've had, which is somebody will be talking about a famous person, and it's somebody I know personally. Right. Me exactly. It, it happens all the time, and I'm like, well, I don't want to be a dick. <laughs> So I'm not going to ruin your story by saying, oh, yeah, I was just talking to Bob yesterday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, well, That makes your story seem a little smaller than you hoped it would be. Well, we'll be, we'll be watching TV, and, and I'll, I'll laugh or something at, the, at a weird moment, and my wife will lean over and go, what, do you know him too? Like, they were like an actor, and yeah I, yeah, I worked a comedy club with him back in the 90s. You know, it's like one of those kind of weird, yeah. yeah it's, it's a very weird life, you know. <laughs> Christina, I think uh, she doesn't complain about it, but she, it must bother her because anytime we have the television on, we'll, it doesn't matter what the show is. It could be the news or anything else, and I'll be sitting there and go, oh, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I hung out with him for an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, he called me one day. Yeah. And I, I know it's insufferable, but it's hard It's hard for me to keep it in. <laughs> yeah. Like I just did this show in, in New York City, a deplorable show with Robert Davi. I don't know if you saw that or, or knew that I did that, but you know he was such a nice guy. We hung out and and everybody goes Robert Davi, the actor, the from Goonies. Oh, like yeah, like oh yeah. I mean, to, it was just he and I hanging out, and he opened the show with music and stuff, and I did stand up with Terrence Williams. Well, Terrence was on the show too. Oh yeah, but but it's if it, people are like, I can't believe Robert Davi. You're like yeah, he's a normal guy, you know. Right. Yeah, that's. That's the other thing that you've had the experience as well. That famous people are, are normal people. Yeah, I think the exceptions are the child actors. Yes, I, I think sometimes the ones who who get famous early, they don't have the same influences on their development, and then they they maybe don't have the same, I don't know, the same gates to keep their their own brain in in check. Yeah, but I, you know, my success came you know after I was thirty, so I was pretty well baked in. Uh, and for anybody whose success came when they were actually an adult, you, they're just regular people. Yeah, yeah. Now, where – this is going to be a very odd question, but maybe not. Are you going to heaven or hell? 
<laughs> um, I'm not a believer. So uh, my best guess is that we're a simulation, meaning that we're a software simulation created by some species like us or unlike us that figured out how to make another species and a software. Now, you've heard the simulation theory. Is this the first time you've heard it or no? Uh, kind of the matrix kind of thing? Well, not exactly. Um, Elon Musk talks about this a lot. I, I drop his name just so you know it's not some crazy fringe thing I made up on my own. Uh, there's a physicist philosopher guy, Nick Bostrom, who is most noted for this. And it's the idea that we know in our current um, reality that we will soon be able to create software where there are little people created a software who will act as though they're real. In other words, they'll have an internal software belief that they're real creatures in a real world. Yeah. Since we know we'll be able to do that, if we can't do it today, certainly in our life, um, what are the odds that we'll only make one of them? Well, very low. Once we can make them, we'll probably make a bunch of them. Yeah. So what are, so what are the odds, backing that up, that we are an original species versus one of what could be trillions or trillions of artificial species made by real species. Right. Now, this kind of so, goes along with an idea that I had years ago. Remember the Dr. Seuss, who I still think is a genius, Horton Hears a Who, where he's, right. where he's holding the clover and it's all the little life on the clover? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how do we know that we're not the same way, that we, we think we are, but there's like four or five things bigger than us hold, holding that elephant back on up, you know. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's nothing about our brains that requires us to understand our reality. There's only, we're only required to survive. So the, the only, the only thing you have to get right is that uh, enough of you in your civilization have to live and reproduce. If you get that right, you've done what a species needs to do. Yeah. That's success. So it doesn't matter if you understand your world. I, I like to use the example of, you know, you and I go to the grocery store. Um, let's say I'm a devout Muslim and you're uh, anything else. You're a Buddhist. We're living in different worlds, but we both buy fruit. We both pay for it. We both go home, have jobs, reproduce. It didn't matter. Yeah. Our, we, we don't have to understand reality even a little bit in order to perform within it. Well, it's kind of like if uh, a, a fleas on a dog, you know, do they even know what, where they are, or what they live? Or, the, you know, do they go, oh, my God, here comes that giant claw again? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think we're fleas on the dog most of the time. I, I use the dog example when uh, I talk about my dog Snickers who at a certain time of the day she'll look at me with her pleading eyes like it's time to go out and play fetch in the backyard. Now, sometimes I can and sometimes I'm busy. But what does the dog think about that? Because I think in the dog brain, I'm just speculating, that the dog is thinking, you idiot. I am so clearly communicating it's time to go fetch. So if, so if you don't stop what you're doing and doing it now, you fool. How stupid are you, human? How clearly must I be communicating? Look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. Yeah. These are fetch with me eyes. And, <laughs> and so I keep in mind that the dog can't tell if I'm brilliant or stupid. Yeah. Right. But keep in mind that you also can't tell, you and I, if somebody is that much smarter than us, we can't tell. If we're, if we're brilliant or stupid. <laughs> you can't tell. So just keep that in mind. Sometimes yeah. you're the dog. 
Yeah. Well, that is a great place to wrap this up today. I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I, I would love to have you on again sometime to discuss uh, the, the the point of my podcast. Typically, a lot of times how this got started is remasculate is how we have kind of lost control of, of, of men being men and little boys raising up to be men. And uh, maybe sometime get you back on and talk about how we can get that back on track. Hmm, that's a big topic. Yeah. I'd be happy, happy to do that anytime. I would love to. So at this point, I always say to the guest, let people know how to find you. What's the best way if people now want to go, do they Google you or what's the best? Yeah, I'm, I'm really easy to Google because there's only one Scott Adams that comes up at the top of your search. But Dilbert.com is where you find the comic. And if you want to follow any of the political persuasion stuff, Twitter is best at Scott Adams says all one word. Scott Adams says. Ah, any any final words that you would like to to leave with? Final words, the the words that will wrap up everything, that will Just, bring it all together. Yeah, put a bow on it for me, <laughs> sir. Put a bow on it. Well, uh, I would recommend in all cases that people keep us a healthy dose of humility about how smart we are. Because that's your best way to stay out of your bubble. Just remember, sometimes you're the human and sometimes you're the dog, and you can't tell the difference. Yeah. As my dad used to say, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. <laughs> yes. I stole it from that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, that's one of the great country sayings of all time, Matt. So I appreciate yep. you. Thanks for coming on and doing the podcast. And uh, I'll be in touch with you through Twitter as always because I, I love to follow you and uh, – at getting arguments with with your followers, well, not followers. They're not really your followers. My trolls. Yes. Your trolls. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All appreciate right. It. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you, man. Well, that's it, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did doing it. I had so much fun talking to Scott. Learned a lot. Uh, I always felt like a there's kind of a kindred spirit there because of both being cartoonist and both finding our way on Twitter and, and kind of uh, like he's found a whole new career on Twitter, which basically um, I have too with all my characters and all the videos that I've been doing for the internet and posting on Twitter. It's been a whole new uh, life experience. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Share this with your friends. It's the only way people find Remasculate. It's the only way pod, my podcasts like mine get found because I'm an independent guy. I'm not like on one of those Podcast Ones or Westward One Connection podcast or blah, blah, blah. Just a little thing I'm doing from the studio in my house. And I appreciate you guys. I love you so much. And uh, so God bless America. Go listen to some Oak Ridge Boys. I bid you adieu. Self and fly up 
contemplate its manly fate. He thinks about guns and trucks and stooges three, men and boys, and that doesn't sound right. He thinks about boobs and bacon and power tools. Come with me, let your masculine. Oh, won't you come with me and remind? Aloha!